Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. Hey, good evening. We're going to jump in tonight. Glad you guys are back. Uh, we've only got a couple of weeks left in this particular study, and then we're, we get some other stuff we'll do after that, uh, with myself and some other teachers. Uh, but we live in the book of Jonah, uh, loving this a lot. Tonight is a fun chapter. Uh, fun because I think you get so many cool angles to it, uh, some of which I will readily admit, like a lot of things I say, or live in a realm of opinion and speculation. So I want to give a disclaimer right up front. But I love to do things in a large church to get to know one another, kind of, you know, say hello, all that kind of stuff. And you may be creature path already, you're sitting with the same people at the same table, or maybe you're mixing it up. But I want you to do this. Pull out a sheet of paper in front of you. Just grab a sheet of paper. You can use your phone. I'm fine with that. Uh, I just don't know the varying degrees of technology capability we've got in this room. Um, if you got your phone, that's fine. Use your phone. Uh, let's do this, though. So, on the slip of paper, write down. You have to go, we're not gonna have, you're not going to share these, I promise. I want you to write down your street address, okay? At the same time, you got your phone, pull it up and pull up your house, okay? All right, write down your street address. Got it? Do the same thing if you've got the technology to do it. Pull up your street address your house that you live in or your apartment or wherever it is that you're currently residing. Okay, got that? Yeah, just yeah, Google Maps. How are you going to do it? Okay? So go around and basically what I want you to do is try to describe the people at your table, ballpark of where you live. If you've got it on a map, just show them I live right here. Okay? Let's do that right now. You can zoom out a little bit, zoom in, kind of show them the ballpark area where you're from. Okay? Got a point we're making here. Okay? Alright, step two. I want you to write down below your street address. I want you to write down your zip code, all right? Put your zip code down. Your zip code. Okay, now just out of curiosity, uh, unless you are, you know, living in the same home as this person, how many people at the table you have more than one zip code at your table? All right, let's find that out. Your table has more than one zip code, raise your hands. Table, all right, interesting. We got three zip codes here. Three people, three zip codes. I love that. Anybody got more than three zip codes at a table? More than three. Okay, you got three. Who else got three zip codes? Three here, three here, three here, three there. Four. We have a winner. Four people, four zip codes. All right. Let's do this. Because we live in a world of technology. Uh, we won't use your home phone, because if it's your home phone, we're all going to have a 417 area code. But I want you to write down the area code that your cell phone starts with. Okay, the area code that your cell phone starts with. 
How we got it? You may not have a cell phone, and that's just fine. Don't worry about it. It doesn't matter. You can use home phone. Don't sweat it. I kind of wish I didn't have a cell phone. To be honest with you. Okay, well, let's see how many different. I'm just curious. You have three different area codes at your table. You have three again. All right. I'm curious how many different area codes we can get. We're gonna write these down. There's a point to it in a second. Uh, we have. I know we got four one seven. Yeah. What else do we have? And you don't tell us where it is. We're gonna try to guess where it is real quick. Huh? What do we have? Yeah, back here. Six three six. Six three six. Where? And anybody want to guess where six three six is? Nobody know. Huh? That's St. Louis. Is that right? And say, okay, well, that's said general. Yeah, we got it. Anything else besides 47636 we have in the room right now? 972. 972. What is 972 area code? Anybody know? Don't Google it, you cheaters. Okay? Oklahoma, we got to guess. 918 is Oklahoma. I'm guessing Texas. Is it Texas? Is it Dallas? Okay, all right. I think I called that the boys, huh? 972 number. All right, anybody else got an area code? What do you have? 502. 502. Woo! Sam Stowe, Louisville, Kentucky. And what was the other one? 859. Indiana? Lexington. All right, all right. Anybody else got any other area codes not listed? Do we have one? 913. 913, Kansas City? Uh, yeah. Kansas City area, region? Yeah, we're going a big big picture. 918, Oklahoma, I know that. You got 918? I just blew that one, sorry. <laughs> okay, what else? 785. Seven, okay, we did 785. Where was that at? Right here? 785. Anybody want to take a guess? What's seven, Western Kentucky is a guess, is that right? No? Huh? North Kansas. North Kansas? Okay. Lawrence, Kansas. All right, we're going back here. I've never called that one. I don't think, I think anybody want to take a guess on what 951 is? I'm going to Nebraska. No? What is it? California. We're at California. We're at California. Corona area. Okay. All right. Anybody else got, a, got an area code that we've got listed up there? 620. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. I've called that one. Anybody else got one? Not listed up here. Okay? We have a lot of geography represented here. So what we've done this tonight, already talking about it, it's interesting. If, I want you to go around the table real quick. Again, if you don't know the people you're seated with, we're going to do this every week. I love we get to know each other. Sometimes our geography can tell our story. All right? Just a little bit. Uh, I'm going to pick on someone here in this room. Uh, how many of you guys... I'm gonna I'm gonna pick on somebody I know. All right, Sam Stander. You know, mind Sam so she'll she'll stand up. I know Stander really well. She maybe told me I could do this. She told me I could pick on you anytime I wanted. If you were gonna write the story of Sammy's geography, on what like we all have it like impressions. If you know it, don't give it. You you just sit quietly. But we're gonna make up a story of what you think. We'll take all the opinions we want as quick as we can. Geography tells a story. Geography tells a story. All right. In terms of where we're from. Basically, you look at Sam, already we are really quick to judge and like start surmising who people are, where they come from, what their stories are. Alright? Uh, just say your name. 
You're, like, just say your name and how long you've been married. Samantha Alps Snow. Alright, automatically. What region of the country do you think she's from? Alright, we got that done real quick. That didn't take long. We're dead in on that one. If you were to describe where you think Sam's from, what would you guess? Huh? Norway? We're in the south, but uh, south of Norway maybe. No, she's actually from like the United States. Oh, Nashville, Kentucky. Anybody else want to give a guess? Arkansas? Alabama, all right. Okay, tell me what kind of town you think Sam grew up in. Small town, okay, anybody else? Okay, we got Sam, we're gonna pick one of these states. Which one are we gonna pick? We're gonna go Tennessee? All right, wait, uh, Tennessee or Kentucky? We're gonna take a vote, raise your hands. All for Tennessee, raise your hand. All for Kentucky, raise your hand. Those that don't care, leave your hands down, okay? <laughs> if you think that Sam comes from, she's a big city girl, raise your hand. If you think she's a small town girl, raise your hand. All right, we are unanimous that Sam Snow is a small town girl. All right, so automatically, do we think Sam's, you know, is she a girl that lived in the city, or do you think she's a girl that probably lived a little more out in the country? All right, is Sam more of a of like small town, lived in town, like suburban, little house in, in, in a small city, or is Sam a girl that probably lived outside of town a little ways? All right, in town, raise your hands. Okay, you think she lived out in the country, raise your hands. All right, so well, we got Sam today. Sam's from Tennessee. Her geography is that she grew up in a, in a, in a outside of a small town living out in the country. All right? It's interesting how geography matters. Because we, we define people. We define stories around geography. Sam, because I know your story, and we could not, they could not have been more wrong about you. Uh, like, like, we're so wrong on Sam. Like, you guys, you guys aren't even in the galaxy. Like, not even close. Towards who Sam Snow is. Uh, she's on staff here, you know. You're about to find out. Now, give him the nitty-gritty. Don't, don't pull punt. Well, I say, okay, because of where she grew up, some of you guys will, may not know. Tell, tell him, Sam, who you are, where you're from, because geography tells your story. Right. All right, uh, tell him. So, I was born and raised for 18 years in the inner city, uh, Louisville, Kentucky, and... Now, by inner city, you, you need to go through and dial that in a little bit, because people think you, like... Lived like just like in the downtown of a city. No, it's like the ghetto. Okay, all right. Um, and so I didn't even really have proper English at all until I went to college in East Tennessee, which is probably where some of y'all heard. But then I lived in Atlanta, Georgia for five years after that before moving here. But my childhood is. Who are in the city of Louisville? Anybody know anything about the city of Louisville? City, right, tell, tell me where you lived in Louisville. Portland. Okay, so if you know anything about Louisville, that's where most people do mission trips. Yeah. <laughs> That's where Sam's from. Most people hear that I'm from Portland and they're like, like it's usually a gas. But that's home for you. That's still where your family lives. That's where my mom and dad's mom and dad are still there. Brothers, you, know, you, got, you got family right around that area. You got witness drug deals on a daily basis. Yeah. Uh, know the smell of weed like it's, I could catch it yeah. miles away. Because yeah. Everyone smoked it. But you're anything but a small town girl from Tennessee. Yeah. Not who you are. It's interesting how geography tells your story. All of a sudden, you guys are like, whoa, Sam's seen some stuff. Thank you, Sam. You're good. All of a sudden, your, your view of Sam just changed, didn't it? Like, whoa, that girl knows a few things. She's been around for a while. She's, she's, she's grown up in a very, very tough part of town. Geography tells a story. And I want to ask a question. Does geography matter? It does matter. It matters a lot. So let's do this at your tables. I want you just to fly through quickly so everyone gets to answer. Answer some basic questions. 
Where are you from? Where are you from? And then I want you to answer, you can answer quickly, where are you at right now? We're gonna, I'm going to pause recording for a second why this matters a little bit. Where are you from? Because sometimes where you're from matters. Okay? All right, let's pause it. Go ahead. Okay, here we go. So we've had this conversation of geography matters. And I know it's probably not some of your favorite classes when you were... I remember learning as a kid, rivers, memorizing the rivers, all the states, all that kind of stuff. Um, it's an interesting conversation, I think, because geography matters to God. It matters to God. You're going to find that He is going to be very specific about where Jonah is. Even, even some of the stuff that He gives you in the geography that Jonah does, even setting up where, where Jonah's from. So if we go back and we know the story, Jonah's geography is... He's a good Jewish prophet from, from the land of Israel. And he's about to be sent to the Assyrian Empire. He's about to be sent to modern day Iraq. He's about to be sent to a place that is full of danger and death for him. And he's already faced danger and death because of his own stupidity. So we pick up in Jonah's life. We're going to talk about the geography stuff here in a little bit. I just want to set it up so I can come back and do it. Uh, chapter 3 tonight, where we're at. It says this. He says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. If you had a golf, they call it a moment. If you had a do-over, one do-over in your life, you know what it would be. You had one do-over. One opportunity. That was all. I'm not going to repeat that one on the podcast. That's funny. If you had one do-over, what would it be? And it might be, uh, I would or would not have married this person. It might be, I wouldn't have bought that. I wouldn't have gotten into business with this, this individual. I would have gotten this degree if I had the opportunity. I, w- I would have pursued it. Anybody here you know, and it's not something that's going to embarrass you, or it's not going to be, I, I'm not looking for anything dark or sordid or difficult. Uh, if it can stay on the lighter side, that's fine. If, if you want to say something like that, that's cool too. I'm just curious right now, if you would do over, I just want to get a few of them in order. What would be your do? Really, you would do it over again? No, you would, oh, not you would not? Okay, that would be easy. You would not buy that new card. Again? Huh? No, 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 you got it right. That's great. That's great. You had a do over, and you, would, you could say, I, I would not do that again. I, I wouldn't do it. What would, what would you do? Or if you, had a, if you had a chance to say, I would, I would do it again. Anybody else got one? I wish I would have never gone to that stupid mountain bike. 
wish I never would have gotten that down bike. I mean, I am going to deal with quirks and pains the rest of my life. If I had a do-over, I wouldn't have gone to Fitness Bill that day. You know, I'm still dealing with paralysis, all kinds of issues that I do I do over. Wish I would have never gotten that skin bike. I mean, I've learned a lot. And we, we, a lot of people do that, don't we? We learn a lot from our mistakes. I'm not sure Jonah really does. He gets a mulligan. In golf, you know what it is. If you're any golfers here, you stand on the tee box. You swing away, it cranks out, you know, into the hazard, out the water, goes out of bounds, and golfers call them mulligan, okay? It's the lamest thing in golf, okay? They call them mulligan. It's like no other sport gets to do that. Golfers pull another, you know, pull in the bag, you know, go, you know, ball out of the bag, you put it back on the tee, whack it again, mulligan, you know. He gets a do-over right here. See in chapter, verse, chapter 1, it says, When the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, he said, Go to the great city of Nineveh. Lots of great cities he could have gone to, no doubt. Nineveh probably would have been the greatest in terms of just prestige. Uh, and by prestige, I don't mean like how nice it is. I mean by notoriety. Nineveh was a powerhouse. Uh, I want to talk later on. I'll speculate later. But I'd ask myself all day today, I got captivated by this thought. Why Nineveh? Why, why Nineveh? There's a lot of other cities he could have gone to. They're, they're not even just not even just Jewish. He could have gone to Jewish city. Why Nineveh? And if you watch it, God's particular about that city and that spot. Like, I keep I keep asking myself, why, what's the big deal with Nineveh? I mean, like, if he goes anywhere else, God just punishes him. If he tries to go to Tarshish, he would have gone to, and it's not just Tarshish. I think if he would have gone to any other city, he'd have paid the price. And, and I keep asking myself all day why Nineveh? Why, why not just list a country? You know what I mean? Why not like go to Assyria? Go to this country? I, I don't know. I, I, I speculate on it. I guess my ideas will get to the very end of it. I remind you before we get done, uh, they're not theological or mythical, they're just ideas. But for some reason, none of them matters to God. It's a very specific call. And he says, I need you to go to this very specific city. Go there. Anything else, you turn left or turn right, you're wrong. He goes on, this is what he says. He says, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. They're walking. We know this is a big city. Probably in the surrounding area, you're talking, well, probably in the whole area, inside the walls and outside the walls, you know, from half a million to a million people. You know, the largest city at this point in Jerusalem would have been Samaria, had about 30,000 people. So when you're talking about Jonah going from a city of about 30,000, all of a sudden walking to the city itself with probably a quarter million plus people actually live in the city, and then the surrounding area, good night. I mean, this is like, this is like small town kid goes to a really, really, really big city. And it would have been overwhelming. Three days. You can imagine that. You know, if you had to walk across, if you've done any time walking in a large city, uh, man, I, I travel a lot and spend time walking in, in big cities. Been lost in big cities. <coughs> I've been lost in Rome, and I thought I would never find my way back. Uh, like trying to figure out where am I right now? I got lost in Beijing. It, I mean, literally, it's skyscraper after skyscraper. There are no landmarks, and I could even get my bearings around. Like where am I right now? I've been lost in lots of big cities and find my way around. And it's not hard for me to realize why it would take me three days. There's streets to navigate. There's shops to navigate. There's people to navigate. And everywhere he's going, he is just inundated by a mass of humanity. 
We're going to get to verse 4 here in a second. He says, on the first day, uh, on the first day, Jonah started into the city. Um, he proclaimed 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. All right, let's live in this a little bit. I want to talk about this, this city here for, for a while. We're going to camp out here for just a bit. Um, I think our ministry, our ministry is not just, as Christian, our ministry is not just theological. I think it's geographical as well. I think it's, I think it's when we live in the world of theory. When we live in these we need these broad mindsets of, I'm just going to take the love of God as I go. I'm just going to take the love of God as I move. I'm going to take it, you know, like, just generally, it's just, it's just going to kind of go with me here and there. It's very interesting to me that, that he doesn't do that with Jonah. He doesn't go to a very specific place. He sends him into the city. What does that look like when the gospel enters the city? Let's ask this question. What should it look like when a gospel, when a godly man enters the city? What should it look like? Just give us a couple of facts. Like, tell me things that should happen. Not necessarily in Nineveh, because none of these people are believers, but when you get a group of believers, yeah, there should be respect. When you have a group of believers that is well in the city, what, what kind of things should we see in that city? Absolutely true. What else? Huh? Kindness? Yeah, what else? Joy. Do you think that faith... Let me ask this question. If you go back in our history, does faith impact things like academics? Give us examples. Exactly. Great. All the items of Should faith impact things like business? Should faith impact things like you know the arts? Should it should impact all those areas? And I think that when a when a believer finds himself living or dwelling or working in a geographical space, that space should be transformed. Should be should be transformed. So pull out your piece of paper. Look at your zip code. Well, start with your area. Look at your area code. Go to your zip code. And now I want you to go down to your street address. Just look at it for a second. Just stare at your street <coughs> And I want you to think about the house that's to your left, to your right, or across the street. Has the gospel transformed your geography? I'm asking questions, not making accusations. Has the fact that you carry good news transformed geography? As the fact that good news dwells inside of you, can you look at the neighbors to your left and to your right and say, good news has come to this area? Because if we'll say that the good news should transform academics, and we'll say that it should transform the arts, and it should transform business, then surely it should transform the streets of the middle. True or not? I think the gospel needs to be not just theological. Why do I say it? Emmanuel. That's why I say it. Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. God with us. I want to ask you a question. In that respect, did geography matter? 
I mean, surely he could have just been with us, kind of in that general kind of way. When you look at Emmanuel, God with us, did geography matter? Did it matter that he took up a physical space and a physical manger and a physical place called Bethlehem? Did that matter? Yeah, it did that. Did it matter that Jesus physically walked the streets and physically looked at people and touched them and healed them as he moved through life? He didn't just tell great stories. Wherever he went, geography was impacting. True or not true? Was. Absolutely true. Everywhere he went. Everywhere he went, you could tell. And literally so many times, Jesus' stories are tied directly to geography. Whether it's, I met a demoniac on, on the side of the lake. Or whether it's, met, I, I met this woman called adultery at this location. I met a woman at a well. So many of I did, the paralyzed man, it's, you know, it's in a house. There's so many times you hear the stories of Jesus, you know, the sermon on the... Over and over, there's this attachment between the theology of what Jesus said and the geography of where he does it. Do you see it? I think sometimes as Christians, we have this weird, this weird state that's happened to us where so much of our, our, our Christian walk has been internalized. It's become so introspective that we've lost the importance of what it means in the very real estate, the very property, the very space where we stand. Look at the stories in the Old Testament, from Gideon to Moses to Abraham. Look how often stories are attached to places. Give me something to come to your mind right now, where your story is immediately, the place matters in the story. Give me some. The stories in the Old Testament. First, it pops your mind, where you think, and it matters that it happens here. Garden of Eden, okay, great. Give me another one. Give me more. Abraham and Isaac on the mount for crying out loud what that will mean. Yeah. Burning bush. Mount Sinai. Yeah. What else? Yeah, Joseph in Egypt. So the question I'm going to keep driving back to is, is there any point where we get lulled into the state of confusion when we forget about the importance that theology has to impact geography, to where it almost feels like our spiritual life really only takes place in our own head or our own heart. Are you following me or am I losing you guys? Is this so abstract I've lost everyone? No. Or are you like, no, I get it. I think there's a danger in it. Let me ask this question. Regardless of what you put down for your, your area, regardless of what you put down for your zip Regardless of what you put down for your street address, I'm going to pick on myself, all of us in this room real quick. Because we are members or we attend this church, here's a fun little thing. Just got kind of a little fun right now. And we're going to poke at it. <coughs> Just poke a little bit. What's the name of the church we attend? Alright. Christ Church of Orlando. Now, this is not on our elders. It's not on Mark. It's not on Matt. It's not on our youth back. It's on us. This is our church. This is what we did. For better or for worse, we attached ourselves to this church. And because of that, at some level, the whole region would know we're probably one of the larger churches. It's probably not the largest, one of the larger churches in the entire state. You know what I mean? Probably one of the largest. We are collectively the body of Christ. Forget that. No. Put the pastors off to the side for a second. Let's talk about the fact that it's really out. We are the church, okay? They work to help and teach us and all that kind of good stuff. And they're, they're valuable, incredibly valuable. But we are the church with or without them. Make sense? We are. That's what we are. We are the church with or without them. 
And we want them because they teach us and guide us and develop us and they equip us and all kinds of things. But even then, we are, we are Christ Church Board of them, correct? So here's the broader question as we deal with the we aspect of this room. If you were to pick one of the cities in Jasper County that tends to be one of the most marginalized and joked about and pushed aside, I could probably list four or five pretty quickly in Jasper County. Give me one of those that's on the top of your mind right now. Okay, Carterville might be one. Give me another one. I'm not trying to pick a Carterville. Alba, yeah, next city, my back, my backyard. But no doubt, another one of those is going to be what? Going to be a little downtown or another. So here's my question: Why hasn't gospel impacted that little city? Why isn't that city thriving with an economy? Because the body of Christ is here. Why isn't that little city thriving in terms of all the different things because the gospel reminds us? Now, it's easy to pick that city because it's the only thing we all have in common. Because we go to this church, we claim that. That's just, that's just an easy one for me. I think it goes into Cardinal, Carl Junction, Web City, whatever your particular locale is. My big point I'm trying to make is gospel should transform geography. We should be able to see a difference. It can't just live here. How does it live? push back on this stuff. I don't know. I've been wrong before. But I've been really caught up on this a lot. I've been looking at it saying, is the city of Web City transformed because of the gospel? Does Carville look differently because of the church? Does this little town of next city, Alba, Purcell, Ornogo, I know them all I grew up here. Do those cities, have they been redeemed? Because I almost want I'd almost want for every county in Missouri say, man, I wish we had a church like that in our county. I wish we had a church like that in our county. But as long as we as believers don't allow our theology and our gospel to transform geography, nothing changes. It doesn't change. I wish Barton County, I wish Newton County, I wish McDonald County, I wish Green County were all scrambling, going, oh my word, can you imagine what would happen in our county if we had a church that healthy, if we had a church that strong? Can you see what the believers, and not the pastors, what the believers are doing? Have you seen what the broader church is doing? Not just what Maggie's doing right here right now. I'm just saying what happens when we as believers go all the way down to the street we live on and say, we're going to transform that geography. And we're going to move to our zip code, and we're going to transform that geography. And we're going to move to our area code, and we're going to transform the geography. I think it sounds a lot like Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. But I think it's important that we look at Jerusalem. I think it's important we have to look at where we're at. Let's get to John. Sorry. I think cities matter. Let's go on. We know this city is probably uh, the largest city that, that, in the known empire at that time. And that whole, that whole region. It's massive, folks. It, it's big. It's intimidating. Uh, we talked a little bit about it. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, the city is surrounded by an eight-mile wall. Now, just to show how much you guys remember, how tall is that wall? Remember? What's the height? How tall is it? 100 feet tall. How thick? Sam, say that again. You got it right. 50 feet thick. Okay? I, I can't even wrap my head around that. A hundred feet tall are the walls. There, I, I read an article on this. 
And it says that it took 1.8 million men eight years to build that. 1.8 million men eight years to build that city. I don't think been, I spent, like I said, I get to spend a lot of time traveling. Uh, and you guys know the story of the Taj Mahal uh, after it was completed. You know the story with the, with the building. Taj Mahal in India is a mausoleum. The guy built it for his wife. But he never wanted another one built like that. Do you know what he did to the engineers? Now it's their eyes. Do you know what he did to the builders? Cut off their hands. So they could never duplicate what they saw there again. I wonder what happened at Nineveh, these 120 million men. I wonder what happened to these guys. After they built, I mean, yes? Does any car portion of that wall still I don't know. I don't know. No idea. We know Nineveh gets overthrown. We'll talk about it here in a little bit. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. So you're looking at a city that is massive. It's got, I think, 15, what was the number I had? I looked up. 1,500 towers, I think. Yeah, 1,500 towers in that eight miles. Each tower is 200 feet tall. 100 foot walls, 200 foot tower, and you know there's archers up there. You know there's all kinds. I mean, these things are built for war. And here comes little Noah, just you know, three days, literally fresh out of a fish. Can you imagine walking up to this this beast? Noah did that. Oh, that's a Noah. Yeah, Noah. <laughs> Jonah. Good boy. Good kid. Here's Jonah shoveling his feet. I mean, I cannot imagine. He says, how far away do you see that city? I don't even know what the approach is like. And you just walk up to you like, where do you start, man? Where do you start? And he just he just came out of a fish for crying out loud. He spent three days in the belly of some sort of sea creature. I don't know, there is nothing theological about this, but it's going to be interesting for you guys to toy with this and play with it. Get your phone that real quick. You know why? Get Google out. I want you to look up the Assyrian god David. This is who they want to worship. Dagon. I want you just gotta check this out. I don't know what all it means. We're just gonna have a little fun, and I'm gonna melt some of your brains right now. Assyrian god Dagon. D-A-G-O-N. Click images. Okay? So you just put the God Dagon. You don't put it serious. Just put the God Dagon and then click images. Oh, you're fine, aren't you? I was like, oh, I'm hearing that. Huh. Or if you're at a table where somebody doesn't have a cell phone and you pulled it up, pass it around so they can see it. Okay? The God Dagon. Share your phone and pull it up. Or you show me see if you got it. Nope, that's not it. That's not it. Yep, you got it. That's it. You got it right there. Let's hold your phones up. Let me see if you got it. Nope. No, that's not it. I'm glad I'm checking some of these. <laughs> We're in different searches. Yeah. And what did you Google in here? What exactly did you Google? Yeah, just the God Dagon. Just Google that. The God Dagon. Yep, you got it. You got it. We're getting it now. Don't Google anything else except for it. Yep, you got it. The God Dagon. <coughs> find it? So this would have been the God they worship. Did you find it? Did you find it? D-A-G-O-N. Yeah. D-A-G-O-N. I don't know. 
Yeah, it's like the Starbucks logo. It is, isn't it? All right. Now, hey, be a little bit playful right now. Yeah, you get it now. That's it. That's it. They would worship Dagon, another god named Nosh. I couldn't find any images of what Nosh looked like, and I don't know, honestly. Um, now, think about this just for a second. If you're the Assyrians, you're the Assyrians living in this massive empire, and all of a sudden, this guy comes walking into town that's been living in the belly. I imagine he is bleached out from the acid inside of this animal, and all of a sudden, you start looking at him, What's the connection? You see it? It had to melt their brains. That they've got a, they worship a God in their mind that was half fish and half man. And here comes, you know, that last thing you got me now. Here comes Jonah walking out. Listen, I don't know what it means, but I'm like, whoa, I wonder why God chose a fish. I wonder what God was trying to do, how he was trying to get their attention, how he used even something they worship. And said, listen, I'm going to show you the man that was delivered from the fish. I'm going to show you a man that's going to absolutely, and it, it transforms me. It just caught my attention. I was like, huh, that's crazy. I don't know what all it means, but I found it today. I don't know what to do with it, but I had to show you guys. I just thought it was fascinating. Fascinating. When I found it, I was like, what? No way. That's what they worship? And here comes a guy that just spent three days in a fish. A man and a fish. Here we go. Let's move on. Um, for you guys that are Googling this right now, yeah, or you're on podcast, hopefully you found it. So let's keep going on. Um, we're going to talk about that. This is a city of great, great influence. Um, and I think sometimes, um, and, and listen, I'm a, I'm a small town, you know, small town kid. Grew up in this area a whole lot. Uh, you know, originally I lived in the big city of Joplin. And that was a big city for me. And honestly, we were such trouble in that town that when my uh, mom and dad started living together, long before they were married, uh, you know, they, they were lived together for a while, you know, we were, oh boy, I saw my mom that was the other day, I was like, mom, remember that time when I was in kindergarten, and you had to come get all three of us at the police station, she's like, oh yeah, I remember it, I remember it, uh, and I just started telling her stories of things I did when I was a kid, you know, all, and she's like, you did, what, I was like, oh yeah, every day, she's like, oh my word, but I remember my, when my stepdad, who was my stepdad then, he was just her boyfriend, when he moved in, uh, he said, man, we, we gotta get these kids out of the city, we gotta get them out of here, they're, they're out of control. So he moved his clear out north, actually, property heritage where I live right now. And there were, if you grew up in this area, you know, you, there was nobody lived out there. Like, literally, our nearest neighbor was an old man who lived three quarters of a mile away, and there was no one else at that point in time when I first moved there. Like, I had to drive, I had to, like, ride my bike, like, four miles just to go see a friend. Uh, you know, we lived, we lived in the middle of nowhere. But I want to tell you this, man, I think, I think cities matter. It's interesting, my son Justin, he can't stand a city. He grew up out in the country. He loves being out you know, in, the, in the wilderness. And I take him to the city, and he's like, I don't like it here. I don't feel comfortable here. I don't enjoy this. I don't, it's too big, too many people. Uh, gets overwhelmed. I think cities matter. I think they're important, man, because you know that cities have the ability to shape an entire culture. Give me a city that you can think of right off the bat in one aspect of our culture that it shapes. Okay, give me a city and an aspect of our culture that changes. Name one. LA. Okay, LA. What does it shape? Hollywood. Okay, shapes. Yeah, it, it shapes identity when it comes to things like movies and all that kind of stuff. Give me another one. New York. New York. What do you think? What do you think New York would shape? Arts. Okay, I'm going to throw out some cities to make it fun. You tell me what it does. Nashville. Music. No doubt. Washington, D.C. 
politics. Absolutely. I just said on New York. See, somebody may have a different one than what you've got. New York? I think money. I think money. I think Wall Street. You know, I start thinking of places like that. Uh, we can keep going through listing different cities around the world. You know, if I go to Capitano, how do you say it? I can't say it right. Uh, I just said it wrong. Uh, or Applewood. Uh, yeah, Crimson Yeah, yeah. Could say, I couldn't think how to say it right there. You know, you immediately think technology. If I think, you know, different, you know, different areas of California, I can list off. If I say Seattle, what do you think? Yeah, you think technology or coffee or whatever it is. There's no doubt that we've got even, even our own, our own cities shape culture. Okay. At this point in time, there's no doubt that Nineveh would have shaped an enormous amount of culture. Here's one thing I think we need to be praying for as believers. There's a blight going on in so many of our cities right now where you've got people leaving the road. And I'm going to encourage you. I hope some of you would pray even that God would shape your heart, maybe, about the role you could play in the city at some point in your life. You know, no doubt that there are gospel implications of what needs to happen in terms of peace in, in great cities like St. Louis. No doubt. No doubt that what we saw take place in South Carolina not too long ago leads to peace and gospel implications. You know, one thing you mentioned earlier was that where the gospel is should be peace. We need peacemakers who say, as much as I love living in rural areas, maybe one of the best things that God could do is place my geography in the city. In a city so that I have the opportunity to allow a gospel to hurt me. And, and I know that in my life, I'm, I got an offer to plant a church in New York City in Manhattan. And I said no. And I still think I did the right thing. I was not the guy for that. But they asked me, like, why? And I was like, they're going to say, we're going to give you a massive chunk, several million dollars to go plant this church. Not salary, like hire my staff, get everything going, all that good stuff. Like, it's going to take about four or five, you know, five million dollars. It's like, this is what we'll give you. Just let you hire your staff, secure a facility, do all your marketing, all your publicity. And I just looked at it like, man, I, I can't deer hunt in Central Park. Okay. Uh, we, got, we got a problem, man. I don't think they're going to let me hang a clan, you know, climbing stand you know, in, in Central Park. That's just not going to work. Uh, and so I, I was like, I can't, I can't do that. It's just, it's just not how I'm wired. As soon as I do wonder if God needs to really soften my heart for cities, I wonder if he needs to, to move in me to have a deeper love and a deeper concern for places like where Sam grew up. And I think one of those important things that we can do as believers is realize how much do we pray for God to break the heart, not to destroy and be cruel, but to bring our city back to your know, If you spend, I get one of the beautiful things I get to do, I get to spend a lot of time in cities, a lot of time in big cities. And I catch myself praying a lot. And I think we need more people to be moving into these places to bring hope, to bring gospel to bring the story of Jesus into areas that are, that are just deeply broken. And a lot of times our cities are just, just overlooked. Most of the time where church planters want to go or in the suburbs, you know, there are some church planters that are going into the city, and that's beautiful. A lot of church planters are going to the suburbs because that's where the money is. That's where, you know, the type of people that they are and where they can reach them. And one of the things we see from Jonah's story is that God does not send him to his own. He doesn't send him where he's comfortable. He sends him to a city where he doesn't want to be, to a people he doesn't even like. But here's the truth matters. You don't have to love the city. You don't have to like it in God's city. He can still use you. Let's God tells Israel how to live in a captive city that's against him. So sometimes I think we can get an animosity 
uh, towards a big city. Live in a rural area, we see what's going on, you know, in, you know, Charlotte, we see what's going on in St. Louis, we see what's going on in Chicago, and, and we can, we can, you know, bad mouth those big cities, you know, the way they are. Uh, but it's interesting, God, God knew that he, and he wanted his believers to be planted in a place like that. I want you to read this text from Jeremiah. Get your Bibles, everyone, someone read it at your table. So get a volunteer, we'll wait at your table, who's willing to do it. Every table get a nominate. Let me see. If you're the one willing to do it, raise your hand so I can make sure every table's got somebody. Alright, got that table, got that one. Got this one, got one here. Got a volunteer willing to read? We got one? Got one? Got one back here in the back. We got a volunteer. We got one here? Okay. Wanna make sure we read this? I think there's something. Here's one of the reasons. I think sometimes to read the word of God out loud is a beautiful thing. We, we don't always get to do that enough. So I want you to read Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 4 through 9. It's where God tells Israel how to live in a hostile environment. Jeremiah 29, 4 through 9. If you get to the podcast, I'm going to read it to you. Promise. 
I mean, if, if this remnant is not pulled all the way through to Bethlehem, if this remnant is not stretched all the way through, God says, listen, you settle in. You're going to be here for a while. You take roots and you stay healthy because I've got to pull you out of Babylon at some point because it's going to take us all the way to the point of Jesus and that manger in Bethlehem. And if, and, if, and if they can't figure out how to thrive in this environment, it affects all of the prophecy and all the promise. Correlations for us. What's it like to live in a culture we feel like, because we, we're really comfortable with those sayings that we're strangers and aliens. We'll, we're very comfortable with those statements that we're citizens of heaven. This is not our home. Those things are all true. How do you balance of this is not our world how do you balance, I'm a citizen of heaven, not a citizen of earth. How do you balance that we're strangers and aliens? How do you balance all that with Jeremiah? Why should Christians put down roots? Is that just an Old Testament thing, or are there New Testament principles? Absolutely. Transformed communities. I think if you're the Babylonians, remember what happened in Egypt. Remember what happened in Egypt? Why did Pharaoh get so, so afraid of the Israelites? They were too big. They were prospering. They were doing too well. Okay? And it became a threat for them. And eventually they're like, we gotta, we got to oppress these people. I don't think that God expected his people to live in isolation. I think he expected them to integrate in the community. So we ask this question that comes to you and it comes to me. How good are we at putting out roots in our community? And I don't just mean a church. I mean a community. How actively involved are you in the community? I mean, I'm talking outside of the stuff where you have to be involved. Outside of your job. Outside of things like, you know, the church you attend. I'm talking about specifically the community. Yeah? Yeah. Okay, we do talk about football a lot. Fair enough. But I think about, like... Do you think that maybe some of you should think about writing for, for a city council position, not because you, you esteem power, but because you deeply love the city you live in? Should some of you find more opportunities to volunteer in a school system even when your kids are no longer there? Should we look for opportunities to care about things like a trash in our city or the, the look of our city? Should we look at it? I mean, you look at some of the stuff he says here, I find it interesting. Uh, he says, build houses, settle down, plant gardens, and eat what they produce. Marry sons and daughters, five wives for your sons. Give your sons and daughters a marriage. They too many sons and daughters, increase in numbers. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I carried their exile. What role do you play as a believer at bringing peace and prosperity to the city? And I'm not talking prosperity gone as I joke. That, that word has been taken off I'm talking to the point where we as believers say, man, the cities we live in are different because believers are here. Like, this is a crazy thought I know. I think because we're Christians, our yard should look different. I think because we're Christian, our houses should look different. I think because we're believers, the way we interface with people at a store should be different. I think because we're believers, that literally there should never be a gap at a PTO. There should never be a volunteer position. That we literally should have people running for offices, not, not because we want to shake this place with our values. No, because it's an attitude of love, not an attitude of power. Because we, at the deepest core of who we are, desire to serve. We want to see the city prosper. We want to see it succeed. We want to see it do well. 
And I think a lot of times the church, and I don't mean Christ Church or Renoville, I think sometimes churches have almost had this, almost a spirit of animosity where we kind of do our thing and just see what's there. I don't think that's how God meant for it to be. I don't think that's what he meant for. I think he meant to have a place where Christians infuse business and com- no, I would say com- business, commerce. They infuse all aspects from academics to these arts to all of it. And I love, I love that text in, in, uh, in Jeremiah. Let's move on. Um, I'm going to skip through some of this. I've jumped on way too many things. Um, so, walk the tension. Walk the tension between being a weird, odd subculture and being too swayed by culture. Walk that tension as a believer. Just walk it. I would, I would hope desperately you know, we got a guy on our on our staff, but when I heard he was writing for city council, here his name's Taylor Brown. Love Taylor. He's on our staff. I heard Taylor writing for city council, and I thought, "Are you kidding me? Like I love you, but what in the world do you have to offer?" Taylor? Like I'm like, like I love you, dude, but I'm like, what are you doing, man? You're not even from here. These are the thoughts going through my mind. You're from Knoxville for crying. No, he's not from Knoxville. Where's he from? He's from Charlottesville. Yeah, Charlottesville, Virginia. Nation Knoxville. You're from Charlottesville, Virginia. You even grow up here. Like, at that point, you're like in your early 30s. You don't know anything about city government, Taylor. Like, like Taylor, you work for me. And I'm like, you're going to oversee finances and business and finance. I remember holding my, and, and my office. Like, I was like, dude, I just got to know. Like, I can literally, I'm looking at Taylor going, like, what wisdom are you going to bring to the table? And Taylor said this. I said, why are you doing this? And he goes, because I love this city. Love that answer. And he had a tenderness in his voice when he said it. And I saw his voice start shaking a little bit. I love this day. I just want to make it a better place. That's gospel. That's when that's when gospel meets geography. And I'm not saying Taylor's the best city council we've ever had. I don't care whether or not he's good. What I care about is his heart and intentions. And they're dead on. What about me? What about you? How do we God will take Jonah and place him in a very specific location. Let's move on. Uh, we're hit all of that. Let's get down, talk a little bit more about verse 4. Um, he walks a day into the city. I think it's interesting that he doesn't stand on the outskirts of the city and preach at it. He walks into it. Again, I think there's a deep lesson that we can learn as believers that a lot of times you really get hurt by people when you're willing to get in the middle of the world. In uh, Jonah, God has him walk a day into the city. Imagine he walks a day. He probably had not talked to a soul. He didn't know anybody there. It's not like he's got friends who are going to drop in and we're going to you know, go hit Starbucks or coffee shop. It's not like, hey, let's go to Chick-fil-A. You know, we'll talk to some people there. Not, he's, I can't imagine. He, he just walks through the gate and he's like, I don't know whether to turn left, right, or go straight. He doesn't even, I mean, maybe the Holy Spirit is like on him telling him where to go. It's definitely not in him at this point. I'm like, how does he know where to go? He walks a day into the city before he speaks. And he gives an eight-word sermon. That's it. And keep in mind, he still hates them. I remember one time, uh, I don't know. I have a hard time having a lot of faith in, in the whole street preaching type thing. I, I tend to be turned off by it more than I'm turned on. 
But that's kind of what I picture that he did. Oh, 19 years old, I went on a mission trip to Atlanta, Georgia. There's this guy named Jim Burton called the Fisherman. Big old boy. And he was leading the trip when we got to Atlanta. And we went down to, I, I can't remember this area of Atlanta. It's this block. It's four corners down in Atlanta, downtown Atlanta. I don't know what the name of it is, but it's right in the heart of everything. He walked me down, and he just goes, he grabbed his two by two, and he looks, he goes, which one of you guys can preach? And uh, I was like, uh, I don't know, the other guy, the, and it was with this other guy, he goes, I, 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 I can't, I can't do it. And he goes, well, I guess it's you then. He walked up, and he stood me on a street corner, and he goes, Preach. <laughs> I'm like, well, he goes, I can't hear you. If I can't hear you, no one else can hear you. I said, preach. I was like, uh, uh. And he goes, you've got two years of Bible college under your belt. Preach now. I mean, literally wanted to pee myself. There's guys walking by. There's people walking by, business suits, all of it. And he goes, preach now. Right now. Preach. And he was yelling at me in front of all these people. And he goes, don't just stand there, boy. Preach. And I just went, I just started talking out loud. And he goes, you can stop when I get back. He left. He left. And I just stood there. One of the worst experiences of my life. I hated it. I would never do this to someone. I've never forgotten it. But I remember standing there, my palms sweating, people walking by just looking at me like I was an utter idiot. I mean, people looking like they were offended by what I'm saying. Looking like, you look kind of normal, but you're whacked. And I remember standing there at 19, scared of my loving mind, going, I will never go on a mission trip for as long as I live. This is the worst thing I've ever been through. This is terrible. This is horrible. And I learned something that day. I learned that I am more concerned with my reputation and my identity. I learned that I'm preoccupied with what people think about me. Because that's why I couldn't do it. It's not because I didn't have something to say. It's because I was more worried about whether or not people wanted to hear what they didn't think of me. That makes sense? Woo! I got my butt kicked that day. I got worked. I wonder what it was like for Jonah. Jonah, that was a no idea. You've got, you've got my head. You've got me rattled. Every time I say it now, <laughs> I'm blaming you. <coughs> what it was like, man. What it was like, man. Eight word sermon. That's all it is. Let's read it. Eight words is all he preaches. Forty more days, and then it will be overturned. Mic drop. I don't know what he does, man. That's it. That's the sermon. That's it. I'm like, can you imagine that that's all Mark had to do is stand up and give it eight words and we're all like, what? <laughs> I did hear a great story. I'm going to have to tell this because it's fun. I heard a great story. I don't know if it's true or not, but it's still a great story. But it was of a, of a preacher that went to this, this church. And they brought him in to speak at this church. And he stood in front of this congregation, a few hundred people. And he stood up at the podium. And he, was, uh, he just said, love one another. Mm-hmm. And he walked down and sat down. And then all of a sudden, you know, the pastor's like, well, we're going to invite you back up. We'd love to hear, you know, we're going to let you expand on that a little bit. Tell us just a little bit more of what you're thinking with that. Invite him back up. Still on the podium. And he was love one another. And he sat down. 
crickets. People don't know what to do in that moment. It's just crickets. They're just like... Finally, like, call him like, come on up, let's, let's pray for you. He stands up like, anything else you'd like to say? Just, sure. He looked at the whole congregation, he goes, love one another. He just sat back down. Something I think about keeping my own life. You think the more we say, the more we talk, the more we communicate, <laughs> The bigger point we're going to have. If Jonah goes right here, he's going to cut them to the core. 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned. Now, 40 days is interesting. So many theological things in 40 days. Give me something to the top of your mind. Or the number 40, not days, number 40. Know what? Rain? Yeah, what else? What else do you think? 40. Yeah, Jesus' temptations. That's a good one. Somebody else got one? 40 years, remember that one? Wilderness? Interesting. 40 days, period that Jesus shows himself after his, uh, after his resurrection. That 40. It's a, it's a powerful number. All over scripture. He says, he says, 40 day, more days and Nineveh will return. The Ninevites believed God. Huh. Here is a prophet who doesn't even like him. Preaching a sermon he doesn't even want to preach. And God still lives. Maybe we take this. Maybe in our lives, even if we don't want to do it, we just do it anyway and see what God does. Maybe just that the simple act of obedience sometimes can be enough. I mean, I want to say that we'll do it because we love people. I want to say we'll do it out of kindness and compassion. But can God work even when our hearts are jacked up and screwed up? Like, I wonder if we can look at it and go, I'm going to share the gospel with this person I don't even like you. I mean, I don't know who probably shouldn't leave with that. Like, hey, I kind of hope God destroys you, but I'm going to share the good news with you anyway. I mean, I don't know. That's probably not the best approach. But here's a prophet that hates the people he's talking to, giving a sermon he doesn't want to give. You know? And God just... I guess I'm looking at it and saying, man, it's not up to eloquence or desire. It's not manufactured. It's just God giving the increase. Pulls me away when it says, the Ninevites believe God. Now, interesting thing about that is, I, I don't want to get into the nuances of Elohim versus what or the word Lord. I don't think it means that they all converted and become, you know, little Jewish monotheist. Okay? I don't. I think they believe in Jonah's God at this moment. I don't think they understand all of who this is, but there's something about what he said is they know. Now, keep in mind, Nineveh's powerhouse, but up north, there's a new army forming, and they realize this is actually possible. I think there's a lot of things going on geopolitically for them. They're like, here's a guy walking in that's been lived in a fish. Our God's Dagon. We don't know what's going on, but this guy's introducing a new God, and all of a sudden he's saying, we're going to be destroyed in 40 days. He says, they declared a fast, all of them, from the greatest to the least, and they put on sackcloth. And you just see them just humbling themselves. They had, they had uh, gunny sacks at a... Uh, that was. I thought put that in on a preaching, teaching all night that. Realize I'm better. So here's an interesting, interesting thing. If you, if you watch the news, and I'm going to tell you right now, I think it's absolute bogus. Do you guys watch the stuff that's coming out from the, the numerologist right now that's putting out? Somebody read that online about Saturday. You read it? Anybody else read this? Bogus. Okay. We don't know the time or date to step on the Lord, but you've got a guy saying that this Saturday 
is the end of the world. Alright? Okay? Huh? Everything's lined up. How many times have we heard this song and dance? Uh, I'm just going to hold it to the, the words of Jesus when he says that he says, not even, not even the Son knows the times and dates set by the Father. So this, this guy does not know, okay? Um, but it's interesting watching this stuff play out. Um, but here's my question for you. Let's just, it's wrong. I don't believe it. It's crazy. It's not, it's not, not true, okay? No man is going is to prophesy when this is going to take place. Jesus already told us that, that we don't know this. It's only set by the Father. Okay? But here's the interesting thing. Let's say this Saturday. What do you got planned for Saturday? I'll be in Louisville, Kentucky area, New Albany, Indiana. I'm going to be speaking for a mid retreat. And if I knew the end was Saturday, I might cancel my flights down. You know what I mean? I might change anything. Here's the danger I think we get into sometimes. How many of you guys would be a little bit used to used to like fantasize about what Jesus was eternal? Anybody who said that thing? I used to wonder when we come back. I remember the weirdest prayer I ever prayed was probably fourth grade. We as a church, or fifth or sixth grade, we were going to World of Fun. It's like the first time this youth group had ever been to World of Fun that I knew of. And I said, Jesus, don't come back tonight because we're going to World of Fun. <laughs> I remember praying that. I remember saying, please, Jesus, don't come back. World of Fun is tomorrow. Almost, never mind, I was going to take that in a really dark place. It would get a lot of laughs, but it wouldn't be appropriate. Um, I don't know if you've, if you've ever lived with eschatology in your worldview, but I think it's important. I, I, think it, I think it helps. I think a Christian that doesn't have eschatology in their mind again, whether they return to Christ or honestly go in, I think Christians that don't live with eschatology is a very dangerous faith. It's what lulls us into complacency. It's what lulls us in to getting too attached to things in this world. It's that we don't live with an eschatology. The Ninevites had an eschatology. And their eschatology was 40 days. 40 days. The beautiful thing about this bozo that's predicted Saturday is it made me think for me. It made me think about what I value. It made me think about what is important. <coughs> Maybe think what I would do with my Saturday if I if this it's not true, it's not gonna happen. Maybe think about what I would do with my Saturday if this guy was right. If Jesus said, I mean I think about the moment like, what will I be doing when the sky feels back, when the trumpet sounds, when the writer comes, you know, whose name is Faithful and True, who the King's Lord of Lords tattooed on the side. I mean I think about what will that day, what will that day mean? I think it's healthier for us as believers to have those thoughts often. To live with an eschatology that the end matters. Because if you live with an eschatology that the end is coming, all of a sudden your urgency with other non-believers picks up quickly. All of a sudden human life next to you in a cubicle or down from you in an office or who you're behind in Walmart, all of a sudden those things start to matter. Because here's the deal. I like I told you last week, I get ticked off because I get delayed at a stoplight. In five minutes has never mattered. But eschatology there is an end. There's an end. And I wonder if we as believers have forgotten at times. That if we truly believe there's an end, would we live with more urgency? When we always ask those questions, and you know my weird, I'm whacked. Uh, you know, John and Sarah and Sam have seen it. If you come to my office, I'm a bit crazy. I admit it. You come to my office, you sit down, my coffee's sitting right there. It's what I'll be married in. No doubt. What? Okay, weird. Yes, 
not get it out of my nose. I'm weird, okay? I know. But yeah, my coffin I'll be buried in is in my office. I see it every day going. Built it. Well, my dad had to build it. Everything I build is crooked. Um, my dad's a good builder. I'm not. I picked the wood, though. Choosing the wood for me was really, really difficult. I, I man, because if you if you work with wood at all, not all woods are the same. And anybody here who does woodworking knows every every different type of wood communicates something different. Uh, like oak. When I think oak, I think of like John Wayne. John Wayne did oak. You know what I mean? God, God, I knew my grandpa. He was an oak. I'm not oak. Okay. I want to be oak. I'm not oak. A uh, pine. When you think pine, what's the first word that comes to your mind? Simple, soft. Yeah, I'm not simple. I know that. I'm way too complex to be pine. If I say cherry, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Huh? Rich, expensive, yeah, you think of that. Like cherry cabinets, all that. I remember when I got, uh, yeah. I'm not that. I don't care about stuff like that. For, so for me, I had to pick the right kind of wood. I thought about it a lot. And I chose cedar. Because Paul says that we want to be the aroma of Christ to visit the church. And I wanted that to be what my life was about. So my eschatology, knowing that, that Jesus will come someday, and he doesn't come while I'm alive, I'll go to him. And I walk in every day, and my death sits right next to my body. Every day. Every day I'm painfully aware that my time's coming. Now, I wanted to take it home and use it at the coffee table, and my wife said, no. <laughs> You're not bringing that home. So, I'm weird, she's not. She's like, no. And, and I know you're like, well, that's a little bit crazy. Is it really? I mean, is it really that crazy? That I wake up every day and I walk into work going, I hope the decisions I make matter as they put me in that box. I go six foot under and everyone goes to eat chicken potato salad. <laughs> what's going to happen? Sell your clothes. Yeah, sell my clothes. Exactly. That's what's going to happen. Like, I want, I want my life to matter. And I think sometimes for us as believers and for you sitting in this room, come to grips with what it means to hear a message of 40 days and it's all over. Come to terms with the fact that you're, you're not promised tomorrow to cry out loud. You're not promised 40 more days. And I love what the Ninevites do. When they come to terms with finality, it shapes who they are. It changes their DNA. When you come to terms with your finality, and you come to terms with the fact that someday either Jesus returns or you go home, has it changed how you live? Has it changed how you think? Has it changed what you prioritize? Because I can tell you, when they came to terms with this in Nineveh, they wore sackcloth and ashes. They humbled themselves. It literally changed everything. So my question is, 40 days, 40 years, what's it matter? 40 days, 40 years, what's it matter? It ends for all of us. How can we learn from the Ninevites? How can we say, you know what? Next amount of years, I'm going to be destroyed. And maybe for some of you, the most productive years of your life will come after tonight, regardless of how old you are, because eschatology starts to matter. It matters more than the football game, it matters more than the fishing trip, it matters more than the car, it matters more than the house. It matters a whole lot more than whatever website you were looking on when your family was trying to talk to you. Eschatology shapes who you are. Does that make sense or am I losing you? You get it? Jason, I talk about too many things and then I run out of time. Every blast of time. I need somebody to put a shock collar on me to keep me moving. Uh, what do I want to skip here? Uh, I want to talk about two ways to approach a wicked city. 
If you get your Bible, let's turn over to Genesis. We've got time to wrap up a couple of things. I want to talk about the tension between Jonah and Lot. I've talked about that when I teach this class before, but I love doing this. And I did not look this up beforehand, so Jesus help me. Uh, I don't know where it's at. Just turn to Genesis. That's a great thing to say. Somewhere in there, we'll find it. 19, Oh, I thought it was 13. Oh, yeah, we are going to get to 19. We're going to start off, I think we're going to start off at 13, 16. Let me see here. Uh, nope. There we go. Found it. I'm going to start off with 13. Start off with 13. 13, 12. 13, 12. So some of the terminology that it uses about Nineveh are the exact same Hebrew words that it will use later about Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm not going to give you the Hebrew words because I can't pronounce them anyway. But they are the same words. Same words. So you've got an interesting parallel story. And so when, when Jonah comes and wants to prophesy destruction, he's thinking that God's going to do the same thing to Nineveh that he did to Sodom and Gomorrah. That's what he's thinking in his mind. When he's saying, God, you're going to destroy it, it's the same terminology in his mind. That's what he thinks is about to go down. So let's talk about how Lot approaches Sodom and Gomorrah, and let's talk about how Jonah approaches Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, approaches Nineveh. So in, uh, if you don't know the story real quick, let's fast forward. Abram and Lot, Abram's uncle, Lot's a nephew. <coughs> they are, God, God's got Abram on this a crazy, amazing journey that he's on, uh, taking him to a new land. On the way, they're herdsmen. They're, you know, they're, they've got cattle and all, and then they've got, he's got an entourage. Of flocks and sheep and cattle, all kinds of stuff. These herdsmen start arguing over each other with each other a little bit about about whether what grazing rights and, and drinking rights, all this kind of stuff. And so Abram's like, "Hey, let's settle this, Lot. We don't, we don't need tension between us. We don't." And so he tells Lot, "You know, Lot, where do you want to go?" Well, it says, uh, verse eleven. It says, "So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out to the east." He says, "The two men parted company." It says, "Abraham lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot." lived among the cities of the plain, and he pitched his tent near Sodom. And the men of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. So, 13.12, where does he, he put his tents? The word, what is it? What's the word? Near Sodom. Follow that word. Now, I want you to go over one chapter with me. From 13.12, we're going to skip over really quick to 14.12. Alright? So, if you don't know the story, uh, I can't, I'm running out of time. Lot gets captured. Okay? Fast forward one chapter. A group of soldiers come in, and they capture Lot. Not a little army guy. It's courage. He says, they also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. Hey, 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 it's just a preposition. What's the difference in it? Chapter 12 says what? Near. near. And what does it say? What does it say after near? It says that they're very wicked. Chapter 12 is he's near. Chapter 13, what does it say? In. In. Big difference. Big difference. And they've already tipped the hand that they're wicked. The hand is tipped in chapter 13. It, it's known that they're wicked. It tells us right up front that the men of Sodom were very wicked. And he just lives near them. I'm just going to get near them. Chapter later, where he's living, he's living in Sodom. Now this is where it's going to get bad. Verse, I found it. Chapter 19, verse 1. Don't have time to go through. God's going to destroy. He's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Abram, please, please. If there's 50 righteous, all right, I'll pass. 
If it's 40, all, all of them lift is 40. What if there's 30? You know, what if there's just one? And he's just pleading. Abraham's pleading for God not to wipe them out. And all of a sudden, these two angels come into this really messed up city. And this is what it says. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. Now, if you've been in my class before, and I've talked about this text, you can't stand here. What's the big deal that setting the gateway of the city? What's the big deal? That's what business deals go down. That's where you, you see all the companies and going in and out of town. That's where the leaders all sit and hang out and talk, talk shop all day. The city gates are the equivalent of city hall. So Lot all of a sudden has gone from living near wickedness to now he's moved in it to now he's actually leading it. He's positioned himself as, as a leader in this messed up city. You see the difference right now between Lot and Jonah. Very different approaches. Both very wicked cities. Both very wicked cities. But Jonah's approach is radically different. Um, I would say that in verse 6, when it talks about the fact that they were led to repentance, I, I think that, that the leading of the Ninevites to repentance is a bigger miracle than the fish. I think it's a much, much bigger miracle. Um, Listen, we're about out of time. Let me wrap up with a couple of last thoughts, and, and then we'll leave it. Because I want to leave that one thing of speculation that I told you I'd do. Um, Nineveh finally falls in 612 B.C. It's about 150 years after this, and it falls. So why Nineveh? Why Nineveh? Anybody? Now listen. This is another one of those moments where the opinions of Jason French do not reflect you know, the thoughts and opinions of Christ Church of Ornogo. I'm being playful right now. This is me just having a little bit of fun with it. Okay? I'm not trying to say this is what happened. I'm just having you go, oh, that's an interesting take on it. Doesn't impact your salvation. Doesn't impact theology. We're just having a little bit of fun right now. Why Nineveh? Why Nineveh? Yeah. Okay? Maybe it was worse nightmare. What did Jonah to face it? Why else? Why specifically Nineveh? I wrestled with this. I told you that when I opened the class, I wrestled with this all day today. Their ability to influence others could have been. Yeah. Very well could have been. I think you're probably getting what it is. I think really is that God wants to show me the heart for the nations. That's what Jonah's all about. Now, can I tell you, we got one minute left, this weird speculation, the playtime I had today. What if God has a point why he needs to rescue Nineveh? We don't know this is true. This is meant for you to go, I don't agree with that, and it's okay, alright? He leads the whole city to repentance. They're going to fall in 612 B.C. 150 years later. 612 B.C. is going to quickly disappear another 600 years. And all of a sudden there's going to be a night in a town called Bethlehem. And the Savior is going to be born. And a few years after that, he's going to receive visitors. Who are those visitors? Where do they come from? 
that came from what we know to be Iraq. That's where the wise men were from. And there's just this part of me going, I wonder if God is protecting his promise. A prophecy. Just play with it. It may not be true. For some of you are like, oh. I've been messing with that all day today. Going, I wonder if God, in his great sovereignty, is setting up what is to come. Because he knows what will happen in his sovereignty a long time later. Here's the truth of matter. That is matter worth nothing. That is something that I've been messing with all day, and when I thought about it, I about melted my brain. Because we know those wise men will come from what really is modern-day Iraq. That's the same place Abraham comes from. We know that's where they're going to come from, is that region. And you could probably find a dusty little trail that leads from somewhere around Nineveh all the way to Bethlehem. No doubt there's a trail. There's no doubt in my mind that there's a trail that goes from Iraq all the way down. Iraq or Iran, those regions, we don't know they all, why they all came from the same place. There's no doubt that the path from Iraq and Iran leads to Bethlehem. Those wise men from the east, they're coming from that region. And today I was, I was texting back and forth with Chad and Mark. And uh, Mark's like, actually, there's some writings that, that people think that might be true. There's some of the writer Ben Hurst, some other stuff. Uh, it was just interesting as I was thinking about that today. Going, man, I wonder if, if Nineveh is strategic for God's promises. I wonder if he's got a purpose that we're only going to understand. We get to heaven like, oh, And he goes, sit down for a second. Let me show you. And we're like, what? You did what? He's like, yeah. All part of my plan. It had to be that city because I was going to transform these leaders and I was going to transform these these families and I was going to place a remnant of believers there. And no doubt, there are a remnant of believers in Iraq to this day. There's a remnant to this day. No doubt. And I've just been playing with that all the way. Theologically, doesn't matter. Theologically, no implications. Take it or leave it, throw it away. Doesn't impact salvation, doesn't impact discipleship. And I would just play with it today and it melted my brain. So, next week, another good chapter. See you guys then. Thanks. Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.